Well, I went to high school in the Midwest, and unlike California, most Midwest schools have hallways and lobbies, corridors that are all under one roof, tied together as, as one big building the school is, so that they can deal with winter weather, obviously, you know. And every morning in our lobby, this big, huge entryway, uh, the buses would drop off at the front of this thing, same shape as our lobby out here. And the students would gather there against the, the walls of the lobby, kind of in little pods and friend groups, and just chat uh, and watch other students go by as uh, the buses unloaded and we all waited for class. And in that setting, I, I had a friend of a friend named Wes who would often sit with our group, as long as he wasn't suspended or in the principal's office. And one day he decided that he wanted to get a laugh out of the students walking by. So he asked our group, anybody have a dollar bill? And somebody, I don't remember who, somebody gave him a dollar. And he took that dollar into the bathroom. Use your imagination. And he came out holding the dollar bill like this, folded in half. And he set that he set the dollar bill on the, in the middle of the floor, the middle of the lobby floor, and went back to the edge, sat with us, and just waited and watched. He, uh, that dollar bill caught the eye of, of quite a few students, some just passing by, taking note of it, and, and a, a few of them picked it up, though. And boy, they did not make it more than one or two steps before they realized what was inside and looked up in shock and embarrassment and disgust and even anger. I remember one, one guy shouting, ah, you know, dropped it and quickly rushed off to the bathroom to go wash their hands. It's a tricky situation for those students walking by that dollar because it looks good and useful on the surface, doesn't it? Looks like something that could help me buy lunch that day or a Coke after school something I'd want to put in my pocket. But when those poor students took a closer look and saw what it was filled with, they realized not only is this not valuable, this is kind of taking something away from me, subtracting from my morning, detracting from my sense of dignity. It's leaving me exposed and shamed and I have to walk away feeling like a loser. And Christians, every so often, we need to be warned about the popular ideas and compelling thoughts of our day that are kind of like that dollar bill prank. The slogans and concepts that, on the surface, they seem like they add value to our lives, but they can be quite deceptive and full of nothing good. That's what Paul's saying to the Colossians in today's passage. And that's what we'll see as we look into God's word today. That's going to show us we need so badly, we need Jesus to walk with us through that lobby and help us to see, look at that dollar discerningly and just leave it there and keep walking on by so that we don't feel exposed and ashamed looking like a loser. So that we can fight deception when we're walking with the one who wins. But before we get into the text today and start studying together, uh, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, you are so good and perfect and gracious to allow us to engage with you today, to enjoy your presence, to hear from your word. And we ask now, Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds to receive your truth and to be transformed by it. 
We ask, Lord, that you'd please give us a hunger for your word, a greater sense of awe for who you are, for what you've done, and a greater passion to discover and to follow Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open to Colossians chapter 2 uh, in whatever form of Bible you have, uh, physical Bible, your app. Uh, you're welcome to follow along on the screen if you'd like. We'll be in Colossians 2, 4 through 15. Verses 4 through 15. We're going to read the whole passage together and then we'll, we'll uh, talk about each part of it, study it together. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For although I am absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. In case we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, one of the pastors here, and I'm really honored and excited to deliver God's word today. This is a huge joy for me. It's a responsibility that I certainly don't take lightly, and I consider it a great privilege that we get to study scripture uh, as the body of Christ today. Quick fun fact, Facebook told me yesterday by sharing one of those uh, uh, anniversary type pictures that it was 10 years ago today at a, a previous church up in San Jose that I preached my first main service sermon. So happy preaching anniversary to all of us. I'm glad you can be a part of that today. Kind of fun. We have been in for, for Colossians for four weeks now, uh, discovering why and how Jesus is greater. And what we have seen so far is that Paul is writing to this church about the majesty and the glory and the power and the supremacy of Christ, the unimaginably gracious and cosmic redemptive work of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And last week, Paul talked about how that gospel is so important, it makes the grind of ministry worth it. That he's willing to struggle joyfully for the sake of Jesus so that the Colossians might know and be rooted and anchored in him, in Jesus. And now that he's established what God has done through Christ and how worthwhile that effort of ministry is, his next step is to fight distractions and deceptions that might be compromising the Colossians' faith. That's what he's doing today. That's what you saw in the passage we just read. And he gets us started in that in verses 4 and 5 by saying, I'll paraphrase here, I'm writing this letter so that you don't let anyone deceive you with arguments that maybe sound good, but aren't really. So that you can be like a well-prepared army in a, in a solid fighting stance 
against these deceptive ideas. And the, the way that we do that as Christians is by walking with Jesus. That's the point of today's passage and this message, that we can fight deception when we're walking with the one who wins. We can fight deception when we're walking with the one who wins. And these verses are going to break down for us what we need to do with that and why it's so incredibly important. So first, let's talk about verses 6 and 7 and, and what it means to walk. What is walking all about? It's a term that's regularly used in the Bible to describe living according to God's laws. Making sure that our conduct, our behavior, reflects Jesus and demonstrates his rule over our lives. It's a big part of discipleship. It's, it's finding and following Jesus in obedience and, and trying to match his character and grow increasingly into his likeness. That's walking. That's what walking means. And this is such an important word because it's the first imperative. It's the first instruction or action item that Paul gives to the Colossians. And this verse is arguably the, the, the main focus of the entire letter. It is so important, in fact, that Paul uses six adverbial phrases to describe what this walking needs to look like and what it, what it means. And so let's try to pick those out as we look at those two verses again so we can understand what Paul means by walk. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Well, football season is back. Uh, ask me if I'm excited. Yes, I am. I love football. I try to limit myself to one football illustration per sermon, so here it comes. We all know, even if you're not a big football fan, that, uh, that a dropped pass is worth nothing. There's no gain there. Dave and I are ex- especially familiar with this as Raider fans. We've seen a lot of these. We also know that to catch and just stop doesn't make sense. That's generally not what you want to do. Uh, to take a handoff and just freeze you're probably not going to be on the team a whole much, a whole lot longer. What you received, you need to run with. You need to go and score and win. What was preached about Christ, go put into practice. What we received, we need to run with. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, walk as you received Christ. So first, we walk as we received Jesus and believed in him like Football. Second, we, we walk having been rooted, planted, which is something that happened for us in the past when we gave our lives to Jesus, when we were saved. But it's a condition that continues to affect your life today. You're still rooted and anchored in Jesus. So he doesn't want us to forget that. We walk in that. Third, we walk being built up in him, knowing that this is where God dwells. This is his home, his temple. Fourth, we walk established, confirmed, strengthened in the faith. Fifth, we walk trusting in the truth that we were taught about him. And when you put all these ideas together, it's a lot like a a little plant being placed in the ground, rooted and watered and fed and given a little trellis structure and a, a nice protective pat by the almighty hand of God saying, this is where you're supposed to be. This is where you will be steady and secure This is the soil of faith that you will draw from to discover and become who you really are. This is where you will thrive and be fruitful. Uh, This is where you will grow in Christ Jesus the Lord, abounding in gratitude and celebration of the beauty and generosity of his work on the cross. That's what it means to walk in him. But why is this so important for the Colossians? 
And why would this be important for us? It's because there are competing forces and philosophies trying to intercept that pass uh, and, and trying to uproot what we were placed in. Popular ideas and obstacles to walking in Christ. And, and those ideas are so deceiving because they look like the dollar, like they could add value, they could contribute to our sense of livelihood or our spiritual vitality. They look good, but really they're contrary to Christ and harmful to his people. So it's walking with Jesus that enables us to fight that deception. Look at that in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, there's the second imperative or instruction word, see to it. And that's saying that walking with Jesus in all the ways we just talked about gives us the discernment to detect deception. It gives us the lenses to look for lies, see to it, to not let anything or anyone cause you to drift away from the truth of Christ. Now, in the Colossians world, they were dealing with these things that Paul refers to as philosophy, as human tradition, elemental spirits. But what do those things mean? Why were they a problem? Well, those things are a combination of Jewish legalism, strict ascetic regulations, like self-harm, beating, abusing yourself, strict ascetic regulations, and kind of a, a third category of mysterious, complicated, spacey thoughts that honestly had, had demonic, satanic influence behind them. Kind of a hodgepodge of heady half-truths and a sampling of nice-sounding notions that were sold to them as a way to level up your, your spirituality. This will help you. But really, they're empty and deceptive and contrary to Christ. So our question is, what ideas or philosophies would be like that for us today? What deeply held concepts and compelling thoughts and sneaky, silent beliefs, especially about who we are, what we're worth, what we need, what ideas might be operative and driving forces in our lives, but are actually deceiving and empty and contrary to Christ. I want to float some ideas, just to, it's not comprehensive, but it'll get us thinking in that direction. First idea is that I, I am what I have. I am nothing more than my worst moment. I'm nothing less than my greatest accomplishment. I'm only as beautiful as my body looks. I'm only worth as much as my bank account or the number of hours I put in. I'm only as popular as my last post or my subscribers say. My sense of accomplishment as a parent comes from my kids' extracurricular achievement. My sense of value depends on the approval I receive from other people. Only if I get married have I truly arrived. I'm only as acceptable as the school I'm accepted by. Friends, to believe that these are the places, the ways where we truly find our identity or the ways we generate our worth is a lie. It's deception. 
These are ideas, though, that I think many of us actually believe, maybe without knowing it, and I think we're driven by them. And personally, I've had to ask the Spirit to help me with a number of these this week. So I'm not trying to call people out. I'm saying I'm very much with you in this. We're thinking through this together. And even if we wouldn't say these things out loud or consciously think them or articulate them, I think they might already be deeply seated in our hearts and minds. But friends, these ideas come not from Jesus, but from culture and tradition, from some other philosophy. And they are incredibly deceiving because they sound a little bit good. They, they, they sound like they might work. They feel right in some ways. But if we walk by these ideas, we will be misled, disappointed, and left feeling so empty. You know that. And this is why we need to fight deception and walk with Jesus. Can I keep going with this a little bit and, and push a bit harder? Current popular thought about gender and sexuality falls right into this category as well. And I think that's an absolute tragedy. I know not everyone will agree with me. I know that this is uncomfortable to talk about sometimes. I know this deserves more time and attention and nuance. But please know I'm very open to conversing more about this. And I just ask you to please hang with me for a minute. Because we have people around us in our lives, even listening right now, who are beautiful, dignified image bearers of God, who feel very stuck and lonely, tense, even tormented by their desires and their attractions and their feelings about who or what they are, who sense that something in them is not right. There's a, a dissonance and a lack of resolution, a hunger for freedom and for peace, for wholeness. And as Christians, we know that in Romans, for example, it says that there's something very accurate about that assessment, that read on life and who we are, because creation has been groaning for restoration and redemption because it's been corrupted by sin. So all those feelings are kind of right. Very much so, actually. Yet, current popular thought says to them, you ought to embrace that. Embody it. Externalize it. Express it. Whatever you feel. Go with it. Get the surgery. Take the treatment. You were born that way. You can't help it. So, just lean into it. Live it out and be proud. I honestly believe, and I say this with compassion, that is preying on the vulnerable. It can sound so appealing and freeing and tolerant and supportive. I think it is deeply misleading, encouraging people to place their faith in the flesh, our sense of worth in something that's actually very weak, to bank on something that is broken, and to link to something that won't last. And it's just my observation through relationships and conversations, learning, what often results from this deception is self-destruction and a life of reenacted trauma and abuse. 
hurt, devastation, deeper confusion, not freedom and joy. Please understand, I absolutely do not say this with condemnation. That's not the point. I don't want to hurt people in this position. I'm trying to say this with compassion and care so that people won't be hurt. Because Jesus doesn't want you to be hurt and destroyed. We know this as Christians. Jesus knows you. Jesus made you. He cares for you. He loves your mind and your heart and your body. He has a new, true identity waiting for you when he returns. He wants peace and wholeness for you so badly. He bought it on the cross. His body was beaten. His flesh was pierced. He was tortured and torn so that you would not have to be. Through his life, his death, his incredible sacrifice for us, he is the one who defines love so that we wouldn't be lost in making up our own confusing definitions of it. Through his resurrection, he earned reconciliation and real restoration for us. And friends, that is where we're supposed to be rooted. That is what we really need. That is where we truly flourish and thrive. That's what helps us to discern deception and to look for lies as we walk with him. I know that's heavy and uncomfortable. I know that this topic deserves more attention but thank you for hearing me out because I really mean this. The Lord has been giving me a strong, increasing sense of conviction and compassion about this issue lately, especially over the past few months for some reason. And I truly believe that it is one of the greatest deceptions of our generation. No exaggeration. And you and I both, when we read this passage, we can't come away from this and not see Jesus, the perfect, good shepherd, reaching out to his sheep in tenderness and in love, pursuing the lost and offering healing to the hurting to show us that our deepest needs for love and worth and identity are found in him alone. That's what our next few verses are going to continue to develop that we have what we need in Christ. And thinking that there's anything we can add to what he accomplished or that we need to be filling ourselves more with some uh, next level spirituality or religious tradition, that's the kind of deception that we need to be fighting as Christians. Let's look at that in verses 9 to 12. Verse 9 to 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, so just to stay on track with what Paul is arguing, he said in the previous section that there are all these good-sounding ideas out there that people say we need to add and incorporate, put in our wallet, deposit in the bank account, you know, like the dollars. But they are not of Christ and they are full of nothing. It's just empty deceit, Jewish tradition, angel demon fascination, uh, self-harm. And now he's going to give us four reasons why we don't need those things. Four Christian truths to help us fight that deception. Look at this. 
First, we don't need that empty deceit because Jesus is full of deity. He is completely real, completely God. He's not lacking anything. And in him, you're not lacking anything either. Praise the Lord. There's no room to add other ideas, rituals, stuff, because our Savior needs no supplement. We are filled in the one who is full of deity, God. It's like when we pull into the 76 station. My truck is empty right now, so I'm thinking about gas. We pull into the 76 station. We usually fill up as much as we need or as much as we can afford in that moment. And no, it's like nobody, nobody puts in four gallons and then leaves and goes straight over to Shell or Chevron and adds another three. That, that's weird. It makes no sense. Nobody does that. And likewise, when we pull into the realm of Jesus, when we're brought into relationship with him, that is where we fill up. That's it. We got all we need right there. When God transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, we are completely filled by the one in the one who is completely full of deity. We have all we need for salvation. And we don't have to search around to piece together our spirituality or the next level of it. We don't need that. Secondly, we don't need those elemental spirits, Paul calls them, in verse 10. Because Jesus is the head of angels and demons. Jesus is greater. In Colossians 1, you remember it said Jesus created them, angels and demons. Now here in chapter 2, it's not like Jesus is scrambling to get a hold of some mess that he has made. Like, what did I do? No, he is seated securely above the spiritual rulers and authorities that are behind these deceptive ideas of the world. Jesus has them on a leash, and that's why they're getting called out in this passage, because Christ is in control. We don't need those things. Third, the Jewish rituals that the Colossians were kind of confused about. We don't need them because they're already completed in Christ. Verse 11 mentions circumcision, which was a physical external practice that indicated your Jewishness as a man, and it involved cutting off a piece of flesh. That's all I'm going to say about that. But Paul says, you don't need to do that because it has already been done at a much greater magnitude in a spiritual saving way through the work of Jesus on the cross because his life, because his flesh was cut off and killed at the cross. So has your flesh already been cut off and killed. That broken set of beliefs and behaviors and impulses and desires and values that used to have control over us rule our lives, and keep us out of alignment with Jesus. That was killed at the cross of Christ. We don't need that. And fourth, we don't need to practice any kind of harsh asceticism, beating, starving, punishing our physical body in order to escape its grip on us. That's what they were doing. This is why he's talking about baptism, because it symbolizes the death of your flesh. When you believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life in him, eternal loving relationship with God the Father, your old life dies. It immediately participates in the death of Jesus and no longer has control over you. And so Jesus doesn't need us to keep killing it with asceticism. It's already dead. Not only that, but you have been raised to new life with him, participating in his resurrection. That's what baptism is symbolizing and depicting. A dying and rising through faith in the powerful work of God. And when we beat ourselves up, it's like we're forgetting our body has already died. Our flesh has already been cut off. 
forgetting that we were baptized already. And so all four of these ideas and practices were deceiving the Colossians. And Paul is telling them that when you walk with Jesus, you can fight the deception that tells you you need all that. And to us today, this is saying that we don't need to fill our lives with extra doses of secret spirituality, new agey Oprah type stuff, remnants of Buddhism and Catholicism. Leave it. Astrology, horoscopes, don't need that. Second, it's saying we don't need to be all mystified and impressed by angels and demons in a worshipful way. There's a lot of TV and cinema that glorifies this. And I just want to caution, warn, encourage you to be very discerning about that, about what you let into your heart and your mind and your home. We don't need that. Third, we don't need to add physical religious rituals to be saved. It is incredibly important that we obey Jesus through baptism and communion, but we don't want to be legalistic about those wonderful, beautiful symbols of what Jesus has done for us, and we should not think that they in and of themselves redeem and justify us because we are saved by the finished work of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? Yeah. And lastly, we don't need to abuse ourselves physically in order to subdue our flesh and its desires because it already lost its power over us when it died with Christ. Now we have power over it because we have been raised by the same power that raised Jesus from the tomb. And from that place of resurrection power, we can develop spiritual disciplines, prayer, restraint, rest, studying scripture, worship, simplicity, generosity, We do these disciplines not in order to to kill or escape our flesh, but to live from the power of the resurrection and walk with Jesus, the resurrected King. I hope this shifts something in our heads and hearts because I think a lot of us are, are, are very dutiful and responsible and diligent and we want to do the right thing and serve and help and be good people. But I pray that those disciplines and anything good that we do are not done for salvation, but from salvation. And I pray that we don't try to add to anything Jesus has already accomplished. That's what Paul's saying. That's what our text is saying. We just need to fight the deception that says we do need to add as we walk with him. So far, Colossians 2 has told us that following Jesus will help us to look for those lies. Those empty ideas floating around in philosophy and tradition that do not need to be added to our faith. And next, on a similar note, he's going to say you can't pay for what's already been purchased. You can't erase a debt that has already been expunged. We can't fight a battle that's already over, but we can't walk with the one who won it. Let's look for that in our final verses, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's good news and bad news. The bad news is that in our sin, we all have an IOU note with God. 
We are all indebted to our creator because of our rejection of him, because of our sin, our evil, everything wrong we have done, all the standards of God that we fail to measure up to, we owe him for that. And we can never repay it on our own. All our guilt and shame, our hurt and hatred, our wickedness, our wrongs, they demand that we die. And we are so completely broke and bankrupt, helpless and hopeless under that debt. But the good news is that our God is not broke. He's not bankrupt, but he is so rich in grace and in mercy and in goodness and in love and kindness that he sent his own son, the most priceless and precious treasure in the entire universe to come into our bankrupt reality and pay our debt on the cross. And not only did he die the death that we all deserve to pay the debt that we all owed, but in him, in Jesus, God defeated demons the demons that try to dangle that bad news over our heads. The demons that try to drag us back into brokenness. The demons that try to deceive us into believing that we need to add to what Jesus has accomplished. Verse 15 says, God has disarmed those rulers and authorities. Stripped them down. Exposed them. And he's saying that Because military victories in the Roman Empire would be demonstrated by the winning general or emperor dressing up as the the false Roman god Jupiter, or in Greek mythology, Zeus, and then leading the people that he conquered and captured, stripped of their possessions in a triumphal procession. It's a victory lap where the losers would have to shamefully follow behind the winner, admitting defeat with heads hung. And that's the imagery Paul is drawing from. It's a very powerful picture. This is what God has done to the demons. But even more than that, check this out. This is very interesting. That word for disarm is the same word used up in verse 11 when God put off, stripped off, our body of flesh when we died with Christ. That word for disarm, strip off, is also related to the word in Jesus' crucifixion when the guards stripped him, exposing and shaming, mocking, abusing him. So, as Jesus hung on the cross, what this is saying, as Jesus was stripped and exposed, taking on my shame and yours, God was stripping and exposing and shaming the powers of darkness. As Jesus hung on the cross, stripped and exposed, he was stripping and exposing the lies of the enemy. On the cross, our Savior disgraced Satan through his own disgrace. On the cross, those cosmic powers became captives of Christ. On the cross, this violent execution, a victory, a tragedy, a triumph, weakness, a win. On the cross, our debt died with Jesus and we are now forgiven and free. Free from the corruption and control of our flesh. Free from being defined and deceived by the brokenness of our bodies. Free from the condemnation of sin and death. And so because of the cross, we know Those lies we talked about earlier are exposed, stripped down. 
so that we can be confident that we are not measured by our possessions, by our accomplishments. But we know that we are his possession because of what he has accomplished. We know that because of the cross, we are approved and accepted, not because of our parents or peers, our school or our superiors, but because Jesus was the perfect, acceptable sacrifice who hung in our place so that we might have the Father's approval through him. Because of the cross, we know that our worth comes not from the hours we put in or the number on our paycheck, but from the finished work of Jesus and the riches of his grace. Amen. And so friends, let's walk in that truth. Let's be rooted and anchored and built up in that gospel, looking for lies and fighting deception. Let's do that by finding our identity and our sense of worth in Jesus alone and nothing else. Let's walk in his view of our bodies as we hope for the wholeness and restoration that he brings. Let's walk in his definition of love and not be deceived by our own. Let's walk in him by being obedient and disciplined, not, be, not for our salvation, but because of it. And let's walk with the one who died the death we deserved, who won the battle we never could, and who paid the debt we couldn't pay. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so gracious and kind and loving, not only to save us from death, to forgive our sin, to bring us back into relationship with you through the incredible, gracious, generous work, powerful work of Jesus on the cross and out of the grave. But we thank you, Lord, for giving us the vision and discernment to see the lies and deception that can hurt and mislead and leave us feeling empty. And Lord, we want to ask for your help, your strength, your guidance to walk in that. And Lord, I, I want to pray for anyone here who has not yet begun that walk. That you would stir in them right now. That you would open their hearts to the good news of Jesus. That you would save them in this moment, Lord. That they would allow us as their brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with them. As we all walk with Jesus, the one who has won. We love you so much. We thank you. We worship you. And we pray to you and sing to you. In the name of Jesus who paid it all, amen.